0: Greetings, cyberspace, and welcome to episode 213 of the Double Density Podcast with your host, Brian Angelo. Double Density is your home to take tales and paranormal primers. Now, first things first, Angelo, people seem to like to listen to you. Um, we mentioned at the end of the last episode that if you wanted to get in contact with us, you could use the website contact form, and a couple of people did, so I'm going to read a couple of things here. So firstly, we have feedback from Tyler, who says, see, Brian, using a contact form is fun. <laughs> Angelo, how do you feel? Thanks, Tyler. Secondly, uh, listener feedback from Sam. Sam says, "See Brian, using contact forms is fun. I actually use them pretty frequently, so I'm with Angelo on this one. Also, I had the same thought about the aerial blog that uh, Jeremy Kerbs tried to pass his aliens. Looks like a Google blur. Love the show. Well, that's nice feedback.
1: Yeah, we like feedback. Feedback. No
0: anti- Angelo feedback. Sadly, that's what I was hoping for, but that's not no, really what we got that's what you us. hope for. Yeah. Oh. So, Angela, do you want to talk about uh, some behind the scenes stuff? Are you ready for that? Sure. You accessed our shared email account so infrequently that Google uh, flagged it as a security risk.
1: <laughs> it's because I was accessing it from a new Mac and I couldn't log in. So uh, that's, that's why you got it. It said type in the number 63 onto your phone or something. I don't even know. I don't <laughs> I even not, know how that security works on yours. On mine with Google, it basically wants you to go into YouTube and say yes or no.
0: Oh, I see. No, yeah. Basically, like I have two-factor on here, too, which is good because it kept you out of the uh, email address that was rightfully uh, yours.
1: If you would give me a heads up, I would have just said yes. Yeah, no, it didn't matter. I I, I wanted to see the contact that we got, but that's okay.
0: Right. Do you want to talk quickly about uh, my big revelation of the week? I sent you a video um, that's also on the Double Density Instagram account and on Twitter all about me seeing a UFO, a supposed UFO, that is.
1: Was it the uh, the blob you got, like uh, an orb? It was, was it an orb. orb.
0: So it turns out that uh, depending on the situation up in the sky, you can uh, have a rainbow halo created around an object. So what had happened is that there was a rainbow halo around the airplane.
1: So you saw um, a UAP then, Unidentified yes. Aerial Physics. Yeah, <laughs>
0: Yes, the P is definitely uh, for physics, but I thought it was a fun little video. I wished uh, for a split second, I looked out the window and I got super excited, but it was not to be my friend. The, the flight attendant was so excited to point this out to us too.
1: Well, I mean, when the flight attendant is not nonplussed about it.
0: Well, they've, they've seen it. They, they said it's an extremely rare occurrence though.
1: Oh, usually though, if you're on a flight and the flight attendant is excited about something, it's not a good thing. Well, I mean, explain. Uh, If the flight attendant is running up and down the halls of the plane, aisles of the plane? Planes don't have halls. Up and down the aisles of the plane, usually that's a bad sign.
0: Yes. But they weren't running. They were just tapping us on the shoulder and saying, hey, look out there. Take a look.
1: Well, still... Pretty and what fun. did you
0: say? So I sent you this wonderful video, of something cool, and all you say is "congrats, Angela," the most stock answer of all time uh, from your your iPhone watch.
1: No, it wasn't. No, I, I literally typed it on my on my phone, and I was very excited <laughs> for you. That's why I said congratulations. You saw a UFO. It's really great.
0: Uh, let's so let's backtrack a sec, right? So first things first, before I forget all about this uh, episode two thirteen, Angela, do you know uh, what area code two thirteen is? Alabama. That is incorrect. It is California, but that is um uh pretexts for nothing because that is just a distraction i want to give you um so let's go back a sec and talk about what you just said about a new mac
1: well first of all 13 213 uh that's a that's a cursed number sort of and that'll play into our uh paranormal episode
0: well also 213 is my birthday february 13th so something to think about there
1: did i not wish you happy birthday this year oh no it's not february 13th here it's, not
0: yet. <laughs> <year>. <laughs> it's february,
1: yeah. has no meaning anymore <laughs>
0: We were recording on the 5th, Angela, so if you want to go ahead in time just to go back in time, you can. I will, uh, I will allow you to do so.
1: I'll wish you happy birthday until March.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, 213 is a cursed number, uh, but what is not cursed is a new slash refurbished Apple product in your home.
1: This is the first refurbished product I get from Apple, and apart from the box saying MacBook Pro and then underneath Certified Refurbished, and it's just being a blank box, I feel like that's the only difference so far that I've noticed. It seems pristine. I I don't examine these things with a microscope or anything, but a quick cursory glance, I didn't see any scratches, works fine. I think there's like 12 battery cycles on it, which is totally normal for even a new Mac. So that's fine. And I've used it less than my daughter because she's working on a creative story for her English class. And it was kind of fun watching her because she doesn't use quote unquote real computers often. Uh, I do not want to disparage the iPad, but that's what she uses most often. And she has trouble with word on the iPad. She has to use it on the web instead of the app because the app on the iPad is not as good. And seeing her use a Mac was, was really fun. It was, she was getting excited about certain things, how, how many fonts there were, how easy it was to access things. It was kind of fun to watch that. And it sort of brought back memories of me learning about computers. I think one of the first computers I used was the well, it was the Apple II, but I don't really count that because it wasn't it didn't have a, a GUI. But the first computer I used with the whole desktop paradigm and Windows and all that was the first Mac. And I kind of even just had fun moving things in and out of folders and playing with Mac Paint and all that stuff. And I feel like she sort of had the same experience. And it so happens that, recently, the first real mass-market computer to do that, the Apple Lisa, celebrated its 40th birthday.
0: You ruined my segue, but that is okay. I was going to say, talking from about one daughter to another, so we're going to talk about the Apple Lisa.
1: Well, that's a really good segue.
0: Thank you. Let's pretend that happened organically.
1: All right, perfect. (laughs)
0: Let's talk about the Apple Lisa.
1: Well, it, uh, it was released... Pretty much 40 years ago, January 19th, 1983. Brian, you know how much it cost?
0: Approximately $10,000 because I watched one of the several videos
1: that you sent over. That's $30,000 today. Now, it's important to know that this computer was not... I said mass market, but it's, it was the first really mass produced of these types of computers with a uh, graphical user interface. A few years before... Xerox had their their computer come out, but that was a lot more expensive. And these were geared towards offices. They weren't geared towards the regular person to buy.
0: If you were going to describe the Apple Lisa, it'd be business colon the computer, right? Because the the demo reel, the use case scenario here, is all centered around business presentations, um, the allocation of business resources, um, business workflows, and things like that.
1: Yeah, the man in the demo seems to be some kind of executive Let's call him Mr. Business, shall we? Mr. Business. And he showed how he assigned different parts of the project to his subordinates using the Apple Lisa. Now, do his subordinates get an Apple Lisa too? I don't think so.
0: So that was the confusing part, right? Is that do they all file into his office during random parts of the day to steal the Apple Lisa from him to see uh where they are in the in the flow in the workflow chart? That's what I didn't
1: understand, but is again this, out? Is, this is the early eighties. This was a whole new thing. Nobody really knew what to do with this type of technology, because when you mentioned a computer to people back then, they thought just a screen full of green text.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, as a child who grew up with a, with DOS for the longest time, until we got access to Windows 3.1, when I was like seven or eight, Um Seeing this in 83 was kind of mind-blowing, especially – I love the way that the, uh, the explainer video, right, the use case video, showed the guy, you know, uh, guiding his mouse doing different things. And then there was the, the picture-in-picture of the mouse doing the action.
1: It started with him leaving a meeting and somebody from the meeting saying, you must have had your team working on this all morning. And he said no. And then that's how he showed us his work on the Lisa.
0: So a couple of things, right? So the first thing is the name Lisa comes from uh, Steve Jobs' daughter, Lisa.
1: He sort of denied it for the longest time and an it. Well no, no, so he denied her. To, well he Let's denied her. Yes, he denied her, which is horrible first of all, but he then later came to his senses. It was a code name which stuck, and then they sort of reverse acronymed it to local integrated systems architecture. Which, <laughs> which, which I think sort is just of like just a weird way. Computer, yeah, it's computer words stuck together.
0: Yeah, it's just like any of the famous acronyms of the 80s, right? So...
1: Do you have another one?
0: Uh, Mask? The show Mask, right? Or COPS? Remember the the oh, yeah. series, COPS?
1: The Long Arm of the Law. Yeah, which exactly. Is like what did that stand up? for
0: again? Okay, hold on. I may have screwed that up. It may not be an acronym.
1: It, no, COPS was an acronym, and so was MASK. Central
0: Organization of Police Specialists was COPS.
1: Okay, and MASK was... I always
0: screw that up, so I'm not gonna.
1: Did you have any mask toys? I had the car with the dude.
0: I had maybe one of them as a kid. So we used to buy uh, toys from uh, like the Salvation Army in bags, in loose bags. So I never knew their names, but I recognized that as a mask character. Yeah, so because masks- it's
1: it mask came out was when I was like a little kid. So you yeah. you were you were not even born yet. So you must have had like the second hand thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, they played on reruns, right? So MASK stands for Mobile Armored Strike Command, command with a K. I feel uneasy about saying that out loud, but that is what it is.
1: Mortal Kombat.
0: True, true, that is a good point. Uh, yeah, so uh, business colon the computer retailing for $30,000. The goal here, like you're saying, is to sort of get everyone in a business ecosystem on board with using these combo computers, right? Because they were computers that had a keyboard, a built-in monitor, and a disk drive on the right, which did not... Two disk uh, drives. Two disk drives, which did not particularly work that well.
1: Unfortunately not, no. In 1983, though, the things you see in the demo are pretty amazing. There's the video I linked to... I'll link to it in the show notes. It's from one of my favorite shows as a kid, Computer Chronicles. And you see the... um, The VP, well, at at this point, he was the former VP and general manager in charge of the personal office system division uh, at Apple, John Couch, and he talks about their goal with the Lisa was to be able to have somebody up and running with a computer in about half an hour to learn the concepts. And now, sort of like the skeuomorphism thing we talk about is is poo-pooed when it comes to phones, but... We still have it on a computer, right? Like you talk about your desktop, your files, your folders. It's still the office paradigm of you know, going back to the beginning of offices.
0: Yeah. And I, what I find interesting too, and I think just visually speaking, is just the mouse, right? The concept of using a mouse in tandem with the keyboard is revolutionary. It's also something that's stuck around until this day too, right? But we don't have, uh, you know, like uh, not yet, but we don't have the Power Glove style
1: um, like Tom uh, mouse in existence. Like in, uh, in Minority Report?
0: Oh, yeah, pulling up everything with their hands and, and things like that. No, yeah. not, not as of yet, right? Or, you know, um, if they exist, they haven't been mass-produced and adopted widely enough either.
1: No, I mean, the mouse has gone from the, remember the horrible trackball in it to, to being laser and, you know, being wireless. My, I, have a, I have the Apple Magic Mouse that has a, a nice glass service that you can use to do gestures and stuff, which I use all the time. But it's still the mouse. Ultimately, I have an ergonomic mouse. I don't much. know.
0: I have a, a Logitech ergonomic mouse. I friggin love it. Um, so I don't care. It's been a year. I'll talk about that. So I knew I was leaving my last job and uh, they had given everyone uh, a certain amount of money to buy office supplies. So knowing fully well that I was jetting out, <laughs> I still bought the mouse and claimed job. it three days before giving my new week notice. And, and you, like
1: me, prefer mice
0: to rats? Yeah, absolutely. I I they're smaller, they're cuter, they don't eat through my wiring as much as well as trackpads, right? You prefer them
1: to rats and trackpads.
0: Yeah, trackpads uh, have never been my jam. I have like larger hands and, and mm-hmm. fingers and stuff, so it's always been a bit of a struggle to, you know, um I will use it sometimes if I have to and I'll usually use it to sort of move around windows, right? So I have the three, I have the push yeah three fingers etc but really i love my mouse um do you remember back in the day when you had to play video games and you had the ball inside of it and you used to have to sort of like uh, push your mouse a certain way and then like scoop up and sort of like repetitively do you know what i'm talking about i
1: know exactly what you're talking about yes
0: the pain of being a gamer in the 90s when you were trying to get something done and you just had to kind of circular like pick your mouse up bring it back down to the bottom of the pad push it upwards and do it over and over
1: we're all busy playing King's Quest and Police Quest and Space Quest, the old Sierra games.
0: I was gonna say something like Dune Two, the video game, like the first real-time strategy game,
1: more or less. Oh yeah, that's a that's a really renowned game for what it did at the time. I well ahead not, of its time.
0: I did not recognize the brilliance of it while I was playing it because it. I ended up so my parents had bought like some twelfth disc set of something that had a bunch of stuff, including Dune Two as like a full game. So very young, I learned how to um, strategize, build bases, attack the enemy, etc. All these things that I do not use at all in my job as a concert producer.
1: And did the bases all belong to you?
0: <laughs> I'm not walking into that one, Angelo, though you tried uh, quite nicely.
1: Yeah. I, I, I use a trackpad on my left side. I have a I have a trackpad that came with my iMac, so I, I use that, but I prefer the mouse that I have. Well I would I hope that a
0: trackpad. Oh I see what you mean, right? The iPad. Yeah, sorry. So the Not so the Mac.
1: iMac, okay. so when I got my iMac in 2015, I already had a mouse. So you got a choice of a trackpad and a mouse. So I figured, well, I'll just choose the trackpad. I keep the trackpad on the left. It really helps sort of with our RSI issues as well. So if I kind of split the work, so moving between screens sometimes, but I mostly use a mouse. Now, uh, I'm going to post a lot of videos in our uh, show notes. I encourage you to go watch them. A lot of them aren't very long. There's a really good one where you can enjoy early 80s Steve Jobs and with his cool mustache.
0: But the funny thing about that video, too, is the way that they set out the interviews, right? They kind of do it like um, a series of stills overlaid the interview, which I thought was like an interesting kind of uh, uh, performative way of, of introducing the subjects. I enjoyed it a lot. It was
1: a slideshow of, of sorts.
0: There's a movie I really enjoy. It's probably one of my favorite movies of all time. It's the it's a French movie that is based uh, that the movie Twelve of Monkeys is based on. It's a film by a guy named Chris Marker called De Jeté from 1962, and it's overlaid through a series of still photographs. And as soon as I saw that, that's exactly what I was thinking about. So that was kind of, that was kind of cool. Okay, so let us talk about the importance of the Lisa in the uh, pantheon of like personal computer, right? So we mentioned things like the GUI we mentioned things like the mouse right so two important innovations that still exist uh, to this day and it's funny i didn't i didn't pick up on the the folders and files kind of business way of organizing things until you'd mentioned it earlier and i think that's a really interesting way of thinking about it
1: well they like we said their their goal was to make a computer that people could figure out how to use quickly uh, i mean even na- nowadays computers are a lot more complex there's so much more you can do with them but back then if it had, because of the GUI, and able to just pick things at random from the screen and move them around, it was a lot easier to do. Now, the 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 cool thing about the Lisa is it had multitasking in 1983. But sluggish. It's sluggish, yes. And the the thing we owe the Lisa, the, a lot to the Lisa, is the fact that it led to the Macintosh. The Macintosh, though, was a lot cheaper. I mean still really expensive uh, with today's money. Uh, my Mac that I bought this week is significantly less exp- expensive than the 1984 Macintosh and does a lot more than that computer ever did. The thing so that is, is, is that, I to that talk Mac- about,
0: actually. Uh, is okay. that right i just want to cool. talk about exactly that right like the lisa was a spectacular fail because um businesses couldn't justify spending ten thousand dollars a unit for a full office right on a for for the lisa but then you know 1984 rolls around you know uh suddenly the lisa 2 uh is a little cheaper you
1: know it yeah, pretty it's pretty much half the, the price yeah, or a third to the half the
0: price yeah exactly and then you know the the mac shows up the macintosh itself right shows up and then suddenly it opens the door to much more affordable computing options, uh, you know, 24 months after the initial Lisa push.
1: Yeah, the, the, Mac, the Macintosh didn't have the multitasking the Lisa did. You had to put, take in and out the, the disk, but it had a much more reliable three and a half inch floppy drive. I think Sony made that drive. It did. It sort of started the whole revolution of using a window desktop Microsoft also got the idea. And I mean, people think they stole from Apple, but that's not really. Apple stole from Xerox, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, all sort of like you could point the lineage towards Xerox in the 70s, the the mid to late 70s.
1: And at that time, in the mid to late 70s, Xerox had a computer that you were able to use a mouse and had a graphical user interface.
0: Yeah, which is kind of crazy. I mean, like the 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 color palette was quite limited and all things like that. And you know, obviously, performance uh, got a lot better with the Lisa uh, two series, which I, I also want to mention the nomenclature of them, right? So you had the Lisa two, the Lisa two slash five, Lisa two slash ten. Um, you know, the two ten was renamed the Macintosh XL, which I thought was kind of funny because like we just—it's true. But we also just see these these names kind of exist in the in the the Apple ecosphere decades out, right? I mean, look at your iPhone.
1: Something like the the uh, the iPhone 3GS was a callback to the Mac 3GS,
0: right? That's a really good point. Actually,
1: I hadn't even considered. And the SE as well.
0: Yeah, and then also another reason why the Lisa didn't do as well is because they were pretty guarded about uh, software, right? They they wanted only their own proprietary software on the on the platform.
1: Well, it came with applications called Write, Draw, and Calc, and those basically were all you needed. There was no reason for a third party to start making applications for it. The Computer Chronicles video, you see John Couch mention the word applications. And I remember back in the day, we used to call them programs, but I guess applications was something that was used back then. And now it's just apps.
0: Consider, maybe, maybe, uh, you know, they want to uh, business-oriented a little bit more, right?
1: And you think that that use of terminology helped with business?
0: I think so. Yeah, it creates a lexicon that is business specific. You know, because okay. the whole idea behind the branding behind this, right? When you really think about it, is you're trying to push a luxury item um, that people don't necessarily need but probably want in the workplace at that juncture, right? Because you know, personal computers uh, in the workplace in the early '80s still largely weren't a thing necessarily.
1: Well, no, because they were so expensive. the The IBM PC was was significantly less expensive than that, but it still used DOS. I, I, and there were shells that ran on DOS that made sort of like Windows type things. I had a, a shell called GeoWorks Ensemble in my first PC in 1991. It was a Magnavox, 16 megahertz, very fast, very, very fast.
0: But yeah, once again, like creating a lexicon kind of words to elevate it, I think is, is part of a smart marketing strategy
1: too, right? For sure. And like we said, we owe a lot to the Lisa. It led to the Macintosh, which led to Windows. Windows, uh, Windows 95, and then Apple coming back in the late 90s. And here we are now with all kinds of options to compute. But we we started this discussion with me saying, and disparagingly so, is that the iPad isn't a real computer. It is a real computer. I feel like I'm set in my ways maybe as an old man and I prefer desktops. And this is like laptops. a persistent
0: kind of topic of conversation that we have here on the show is that a yeah, old man ways.
1: A 13-year-old started using a laptop to do her work and she found it easier than the iPad. She preferred it because it's, it feels more tactile. There's more things she could do now. She likes to code and stuff like that. So she's used computers before, but she's been using it a lot, her iPad, I mean, to do Word documents. And once she started doing it on the laptop, she felt a little more liberated.
0: So same but different. So last week I mentioned my wife getting a new job. And we just confirmed prior to recording this that she's definitely going with a Mac. So I'm going to give her a crash course uh, sometime this week about it.
1: She could learn it in half an hour, according to sure. the former VP, John Couch.
0: <laughs> so now we have to go buy her, uh, you know, because I use... Well, you just the- bought an HP. I know, so that's the backup, right? So if she doesn't like using her Mac. She'll because a lot of her work is browser based, so it's not going to be a problem. But one of the fun things we'll have to go do is buy her uh, a dongle and a, a Mac keyboard, right?
1: Can't you just get any keyboard?
0: Yeah, but a lot of them are are PC, right? So they have all the. PC oh, they don't have the little. Buttons.
1: It's true. I, I, yeah, I just I just thought of that. You're right. Also, oh, she couldn't...
0: used she had used my Mac keyboard
1: on her PC a while back and loved it. So I think we're going to go get her one. Also, oh, the like I'm 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 holding up a magic keyboard. You mean something like this?
0: Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So I
1: didn't realize you so you have a you don't use your laptop to type?
0: No, because I have my laptop on a riser.
1: Oh, okay, okay, okay.
0: Which is how you can see me properly here.
1: Are you gonna get her a cool mechanical keyboard? <laughs> no. So no. she can clackety clack away?
0: No, that's more of a Brian thing, not a not a Steph thing.
1: So would you get a mechanical keyboard? Get yourself a mechanical keyboard and give her your magic. Tactile. Yeah, I love yeah. a good
0: tactile computer keyboard. We'll see though, because I don't know, like those are, are a little bit bulky and larger, so I kind of have to account for that space on
1: my on my desk, which isn't huge to start with. They have some nice smaller mechanical keyboards. I've toyed with the idea of getting a mechanical keyboard.
0: Yeah, then your family would have told you to shut up.
1: <laughs> That's the thing. Well they're not home, but when I'm usually using the, the this desktop, but I I really have no problems with the Magic Keyboard. I feel oh like, I love it. it. Feels I've been great. using it for years. Yeah, it feels great. It's what this thing's so it's going to be eight years old this year, and I mean the battery. I never really worry about it. I plug it in every once in a while. It's fine.
0: Also, I think uh, something we talked about last week is the the unfortunate. Um, the, I fell into that sort of era of MacBook that had the the screen at the top for the function keys, right?
1: Yeah, you you own one of those.
0: Yeah, so I mitigated that with having an actual um, you know, magic <laughs> keyboard with all the shortcuts at
1: the top that work properly. Okay. Yeah, the, the the new MacBook I got has regular function keys. Are you going to do what I did and get a refurbished Mac for her? No. You get some really her, good deals. Her
0: place of work is getting
1: her one. Oh, then she can get whatever she wants.
0: Yeah, and then they're giving her an allowance for, for accessories. So I think we're going to get her the keyboard and set her up nice.
1: Just a quick note. Nothing forever has actually been banned from Twitch for making transphobic statements during a stand-up bit. We'll have more on this next week. So, Angela, we're just going to
0: continue to talk about nostalgia because I want to talk about something new that is also very old, and that is something that I've been low-key obsessed with over the last couple of days. And so this is... (sighs) Some of you may have heard of this already, so I'm going to start with that. But um, stop me if you've already heard about this. Ha ha ha. Uh, I uh, sent you a link to a Twitch channel called watch me forever which is home to nothing comma forever so essentially this is uh, the future of uh, media if you ask me and what it is is that it is a super low res ai generated non-stop always on stream uh of seinfeld scenes that are created by ai and
1: this is not ending it's just keeps so what's it's been going running for days this? my friend and what's running this
0: that is a good question. I am not quite sure how exactly this is working. Uh, and uh, just a caveat before I forget: like they use different names on the stream for the different characters, so in order not to get in trouble, and the word Seinfeld is not mentioned in anywhere. But you no. you get the gist really quickly. So it's really funny to see how this operates because. Um, they cut to in between scenes of uh, Jerry doing his stand up behind uh, in front of a brick wall, and then scenes in various apartments. And then uh, once in a while, they'll cut to uh, like a, an on screen TV guide. And I'm not quite sure if that's when they do maintenance or something like that, which is also super fascinating. And there's a laugh track kind of built in for random stuff. So one of the characters may say something tragic, and then the laugh track may kick in inappropriately, or it cuts in in the middle of jokes. It's very odd and stilted i'm kind of curious to see if it gets any better but i've been i've been watching this for a you know uh, 20 minute chunks at a time because i can't do much more than that because i feel like it's brain breaking and it's not yet an uncanny valley kind of thing where it's almost real like a polar express style oh those graphics are kind of freaky it is very low res it is very you know dos oriented right if you look at this you'd be like i'm playing you know uh maniac mansion or something almost
1: it took me all of maybe five seconds because you sent it to me With no... No, I said, watch this. Yeah, you said no explanation, just watch this. And what, I think I I figured out within four or five seconds that it was an AI-generated Seinfeld, because it's so clearly that. It's so well done that you can tell right away, oh, this is Seinfeld, but with AI. There's no other place for it to go than that.
0: So, I was talking to a friend about this, and we kind of landed on the idea that this actually literally is now show by Nothing, right? Because these don't even have storylines. These are just random scenes where um, one or two characters or even three characters sometimes will say something, but nothing of significance. The plot doesn't move forward. It's just on a weird kind of treadmill that'll never stop.:
1: And that's season six of Game of Thrones) <laughs>
0: you're once again you're asking the wrong person here okay. right i think we, we mentioned game of thrones last week i still not i'm I'm not dealing with that
1: right now. i enjoy, i'm kidding because i actually enjoyed game of thrones but people did not like certain seasons but yeah really
0: in, in a postmodernist kind of sense if you really think about it right it's just this weird reconstruction of the tropes of a television show quote-unquote about nothing that is now actually literally about nothing
1: i wonder what seinfeld thinks or if he even knows this or cares exists. i don't know yeah i don't, I don't think he, thinks I, he does not care I don't think he, he might know somebody, one of his friends might have told them, but I don't think he cares because he has all the money in the world.
0: Yeah. So this stream consistently um, has between five and 10,000 live viewers over and over. That's a lot. Yeah, absolutely. So it's been fun to, to watch this in, in short spreads of time because I think anything longer than that, you kind of sort of start losing meaning in your brain.
1: <laughs> I wonder if it's going to branch off and they're going to have an AI like talk show where these AI actors show up as guests.
0: Oh, it's going to for sure happen, right? Uh, do you remember a while back, maybe almost like nine years ago, uh, Twitch plays Pokemon?
1: No, I don't remember that at all. No? I, Twitch has been around for nine years.
0: Uh, more long than that before it was, before that it was just on TV. But, so there's a social experiment that I really enjoyed. I wrote a blog post about it at the time. I, I can maybe go in and dig it up. But the idea here is that uh, Twitch chat directed um, uh, a ROM of Pokemon on how to play per move. So you'd type oh, in wow. something and it would do it. And it eventually
1: did beat the game, but it took forever to do. Huh. And that was nine years ago. So that, nine that years was ago, yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty advanced AI. Yeah. Oh, 2014 uh, was nine years ago. Wow. Yeah, think about nine that. Nine years and, ago and in my sorry, head was February 2014. Oh, wow, so exactly nine years ago.
0: Exactly, yeah. So uh, it took 16 days for the initial chat to do that. I, I, I think it's so fascinating. I was riveted by that. But to think... In the near future, we may have uh, Twitch Plays Seinfeld, the AI, you know, uh, generating uh, episode generating um, content game here.
1: Who knows where we're going to go with AI? People are afraid of it. I don't know if I'm afraid of AI. I think it's something just to add to all the other things we were at one point afraid of and now are just part of our life.
0: It's funny that you say that because I, as a content creator, and content producer, I think about that often, right? Because there's this whole upper of uh, a GBT right now and of whether or not it's going to replace copywriting. And my answer to that is it's not. Because whether or not you're like it, you're going to need some kind of guardian somewhere to make sure that the words being generated actually, one, make sense, and two, um, fit what you're trying to say. Uh, it's the same thing with people running Google ads, right? There's all these different ways of automating your ad sets and things like that, but you still need a guardian to make sure that they make sense, that they work for your business.
1: And I don't think AI is going to be at that level for a very long time.
0: No. No. I, I, mm, not cheaply anyways. That's a whole other discussion to have about how that's going to uh, unfurl itself because GBT is no longer free. You have to pay for it.
1: Oh, well, too bad for the kids that were expecting it to do their homework for them. Angela, let's go talk about some cursed stuff. I'll see, you. I'm
0: going to, I'm going to hop over this fence uh, with my burlap sack empty and I'm going to fill it with uh, some cursed items and uh, I'll come back and tell you about what I found. All right. computer i'm a computer guy everything made out of buttons and wires. double density welcome back to double density as always we're switching gears from tech to the paranormal so this week as you alluded to in the first half of the episode we're talking about some cursed stuff explain how you came to this topic my friend
1: this week I watched a new show on Netflix called Lockwood and Co. It's based on books, and it, the, the quick are the books cursed? No, the books are not cursed. But the quick premise of the show is that the world has been invaded by ghosts in a <laughs> in with dubbed the problem, which I think is uh, is sort of like a low key way of referring to it because people are dying left and right. And the show has these agents and stuff that they're a lot. They're all under eighteen because that's when you have the talent. And they track down the objects that are the sources of the ghosts and neutralize them. Good show. I highly recommend it. Go watch it. It's on Netflix. This show has the best HDR I've ever seen or I've seen yet on Netflix. How
0: close were you to your television screen?
1: Regular, sitting on the couch. I don't you even have an, getting
0: up and just poking around.
1: I don't even have an OLED TV. I just have a regular Sony LED TV with HDR, mid range. Looked fantastic. But uh, yeah, definitely go watch it. My my recommendation of the week.
0: So we're starting at the end kind of thing to go back to the beginning of this segment. So Angela, this inspired you to talk about cursed objects. So I guess in the show, there are some cursed objects.
1: Well, yeah, that's the premise, right? Is that they have to find the source of the ghost and then they cover it with silver or metal or, or iron or something like that.
0: And is this episodic? Like, do every episode you have to go out and cover something? Or is this, like, an arc? It, it's an over? arc.
1: Yeah, it's okay. eight episodes, so it's not long.
0: They lose the silver. The, you know, it's like, a you know, uh, Lord of the Rings style. They misplace the silver. There's a
1: mirror that people look at. It's, it's interesting.
0: Okay, so that is your recommendation. But back to the topic at hand. Cursed items, cursed objects, cursed stuff. Do you have a favorite cursed item?
1: We know a lot of cursed items, right? There's the, the, the first one that pops in my mind is the Hope Diamond. Right? Wasn't the the rumor? Was it that it was on the the Titanic?
0: Well, that's what, that's what that's what the the James Cameron sort of the diamond on in the, the movie is based on, right? Uh, the idea that there is this kind of cursed diamond on there.
1: Yeah, and there's also the uh, King Tut's tomb. There's um, uh, the the Dybbuk box, so wait, which I've so heard of.
0: Let's, let's 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 take a step back. So let's talk about the Hood Diamond first, right? So the Ho Diamond has a long lineage of uh, issues with it um, related to its cursed nature
1: it It was stolen, wasn't it?
0: I think it was stolen, yeah, um uh, it was stolen from a a statue, yeah, uh, if I remember correctly
1: already at that, it's starting off with the premise of of bad vibes around it,
0: so oh, before I forget, from what I'm remembering from my stale brain right here, is that the hope diamond um being stolen. And cursed and things like that. So the mythology surrounding it is all alleged. They haven't been able to trace the lineage of the the item itself, right? So let's consider that. Um, but then you start looking at all of the different things that have happened to people who have possessed it. And it's bad. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is bad. Correct. Yeah. So this, this is all the way from the 17th century, right? So the Hope Diamond uh, started, was established uh, as the Hope Diamond uh, in the 1650s. And then throughout the years, it's been, uh, it's been around. And now the Smithsonian owns it.
1: Yeah, and as long as it's in there, it'll be safe. It belongs in a museum, as Indiana Jones would say. Uh, uh, have we talked about the newest one? It, I'm not excited for it. I think we have. Yeah, we we mentioned it. I I'm a little more excited than you are. I'm I'm easily pleased you are not. Let us talk about the, the Dybbuk box
0: which our friends and Not Alone did a multi uh, episode series about uh like, oh gosh, like 40 years
1: ago now at this point. Basically it's it's a it's a box that was haunted. Yeah, it's a wine cabinet box. In 2019 Skeptical Inquirer went and looked at it. And they realized no, it, it's 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 something from uh from it's not an old wine box. It's something that was made in New York.
0: I can one up you there. Uh, so this begins 20 years ago, actually in 2003. So a business owner uh, named Kevin Manis is like, Oh snap, this box is haunted. We're all screwed. And uh, it gets sold, right? So a is a, a Jewish monster. So it is a soul trapped inside of a, a dead person's body.
1: I do believe Angela, let me just double check that. It's like a, yeah, it, it is like a genie or something. No,
0: yeah, a dislocated soul inside of a dead body. Okay. And so people are like, hey, this is super weird. So Manis managed to manages to sell that, right? So at one point Zach Baggins um buys it to display it in his museum. Then post Malone visited Baggins and like started screwing around with that and created a whole news cycle, which I think we covered on this um podcast all about how he had bad luck afterwards. But then in twenty twenty one, Manus is like, Yeah, I made, I made it all up. I made most of it up,
1: deal with it. Yeah, and that's what the person from Skeptical Inquirer had said. Uh, Kenny Biddle called it in 2019, and he said, yeah, I I just made it up. And that's fine. It's good to come clean sometimes. It feels good. Something that has not come clean
0: is one of my favorite segments um, of uh, Unsolved Mysteries, and I'll explain why. Uh, Let's talk about Busby's stoop chair, right? So this is a chair that, uh, in the 18th century uh, in north yorkshire uh, existed and so the murderer thomas busby uh, was sitting on it cursed it right before his execution at the turn of the 18th century and since then it has uh lures surrounding it all about how people who have sat in have gone on to to die
1: i keep reading this as bubsies it's pretty and that, close and if there's any if there's any video game that's cursed it would be bubsies Adventure so it has since called.
0: ended up at the Thirst Museum, and the reason why it is one of my favorite Unsolved Mystery segments is because the Thirsk people have stuck at it kind of like high up on the wall so no one can actually conceivably sit of it. But the idea of them zooming in on this chair, just sitting on a wall <laughs> over and over in order to point to its maliciousness, is sort of surreal and
1: hilarious to me in some ways. It's absurd, actually, so that's what makes it fun. Absurdist humor for Brian. Always gets him
0: about yeah about death and execution and things like that i love a good murderer you know
1: yeah and the thing is is when they examined the chair they they realized that it wasn't it wasn't old enough to even have yeah it was created in
0: the 1840s um so, so whoever sat on there is just dumb and just give me the chair please yeah you want to talk about something that i actually never heard of before angelo so i'm gonna give the floor to you to talk about it. um a painting that lives on an in infamy
1: Yeah, The Curse of the Crying Boy. I'm going to have a link to a really good blog post by David Clark. He's an associate professor in the Department of Media Arts and Communication at Sheffield Hallam University in the UK.
0: That's a lot of words there.
1: And uh, he he basically traced it back to a a story in the tabloid The Sun in 1985 in September. The house of Ron and Mary Hall caught fire, okay? And everything was ruined in the house. It was... uh, it was a, a cooking fire.
0: So this happened in September 1985.
1: 1985. And everything got, was ruined in the downstairs of this house, except for this painting of a crying boy. This was like a really popular print in the UK and from the 60s to, to late 70s. Really popular. I don't know why anybody would want a painting of a crying child in their house, but these were apparently pretty popular. Do you
0: have any uh, works of art hanging up behind you? What are those? I see a diploma, which is not a work of art, it is a work of hard work, a significant portion of your younger years. And then below that, what is that?
1: It is a macro paint shot of a flower my wife took when we were on vacation on our honeymoon. Beautiful, beautiful art. Clark, in his blog post, mentioned several examples of of readers later coming forward after reading the, the story that their homes were burned down. And the crying boy painting survived. Now, the reason this story caught traction is that Ron's brother was a firefighter and he had heard of similar fires where it was documented that people were finding these paintings. The firefighters would come across these paintings that were not burnt and they were these paintings of the crying boy. Now, you have to understand it's not the same painting, it's just multiple paintings. Depictions of of a crying boy. Clark found that it was different artists as well. These stories went on in the the sun for a few more weeks, and then they sort of fizzled out. The the sun actually had people send them their paintings to prevent more fires, and then they burned all these paintings.
0: So just imagine this, right? So the the sun is like, hey, listen, all because, so the hall's, um, had been told that you know, their painting is cursed and they'd laughed it off and then suddenly you know boom your house is on fire so the sun is like listen you need to get rid of all your paintings what if someone had rounded up all the paintings right and just created a structure of cursed paintings like it, it, does that open a portal does that open a doorway like what does that look like right is there a hierarchy of crying boy paintings at war spiritually and on different uh, planes of existence what does that look like right
1: I don't know what, what would happen. Do you think it would create those portals we saw in the uh, document you sent me a few years ago of the portals with the dinosaurs coming out of them?
0: <laughs> well, p- perhaps, right? But that is more the idea of space-time travel.
1: I don't know about a portal, Brian, but it would cause a lot of fire. <laughs> so the, the story fizzled out. And then in 2000, Tom Slemmon, he revived the story in a book uh, as part of a series titled "Haunted Liverpool,"
0: I mean Liverpool sounds like a cursed place in general with the number of people who live there, right? I mean that's the home of the Beatles,
1: yeah. And it's there's a there's a shipping yard and stuff. So so Clark explained that the book was not really well researched. It it brought the story to like a new group of people uh, for the 2000s, right? Like now the internet exists too, so so people are going to start posting on this line. So the the book in the book the author creates this interesting story of George Mallory who's a school uh, was a retired schoolmaster and he discovered the artist responsible for the paintings now again the artist was known there was um there was a signature on it of G Bragolin but other paintings were also created by other artists so this wasn't the only artist but in this case this schoolmaster found the artist responsible for the paintings was, was Francho Seville from Madrid, and that was a pseudonym of Bruno Amadio, who was also known as G. Bragolin, and his signature appeared on some of these prints. The artist adopted a child. It was a, he was a street urchin. His name was Don Benillo, and he witnessed his parents die in a fire, and he was the subject of some of the paintings.
0: So it's kind of like a a full circle kind of thing.
1: Yeah, you see where this is going, right? He's also known, the townsfolk referred to him as Diablo because he often set fires. So this little boy saw his parents die in a fire and then started setting fires himself. And then later on, after the artist adopted this kid, his studio caught fire and he blamed the boy. And then years later, the same boy apparently died in a car fire at age 19. This creates a fun well, not fun, but an interesting background. I mean, to listen, this there's whole, a certain level of synchronicity, right? It, it wasn't necessarily true. that like All this stuff was sort of made up by this author to create a story. Now, the artist did exist. He, he may have adopted this boy, but a lot of the paintings were not his. I watched a, a, a show called Weird or What that had talked about this. Guess who hosts that? I don't know who. William Shatner. William, uh, William Shatner. William Shatner. It's like from the early... It's from the 2010 era. It was on YouTube. They had a, an engineer talking about how the reason these paintings were being found... First of all, there were a lot of them, right? I said they were being sold in, in the UK. A lot of people like them. And because of this, they were all over in people's homes. So houses that were catching fire may have had these paintings. The thing is, is they were likely hanging on strings. The strings would burn making the paint fa- a painting fall to the ground where there's no fire and it's cooler, and because of that, it looked like the paintings were the only things surviving the fires. So that's an actual really good explanation.
0: This lore here that's kind of created around this, uh, and then there's like some, like a modicum of amount of truth in there?
1: Yeah, these it was actually true. These paintings were surviving these fires, but they were just house fires, there were other house fires as well that didn't have these paintings, but they weren't coming to light because they didn't have the magical painting that wasn't burning.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, quick question for you in that case, are you going to ask your family if you get a picture of this to hang somewhere? Is this a family meeting that you're going to have in the near future?
1: My kids watched the thing with me actually. And, they and thought did it was they kind say, of funny. dad,
0: we want, we want a cursed uh, crying boy picture.
1: They said, why would you have a creepy painting of a kid crying?
0: That is correct. That's the only right answer. I'm glad that your kids passed the test. Uh, it kind of reminds me of like, you know, cursed media. Like, so do you remember the the show Masters of Horror? Do you know what I'm talking about from like yes. 20 years ago? Yeah. So there's a John Carpenter episode called uh, Cigarette Burns where he, uh, the Norman Reedus of Walking Dead fame gets hired to find a film that supposedly like sparks homicidal rage in whoever views it. And so I was just thinking about like cursed items like, you know, this, this bit in Cigarette Burns.
1: Well, the episode of of that show we watched also had uh, Robert the Doll in it. Oh, yeah. Right. And so they were interviewing people for this thing. And my daughter asked, do they interview both sides of the story? Because right now they're only interviewing people at paranormal. The Chiron for one guy had him as spiritual advisor and wizard.
0: (laughs) So a multi-hyphenate
1: just (laughs) setting the record straight. We thought that was really funny, but no, there were there were both sides of the story because she she mentioned that because there was two sides to the painting story with the engineer who talked about fires right, and how that right. works. And my daughter, uh, I'm not sure you've you've met my daughter. She's very skeptical of stuff like this, and she which is good. I wonder where
0: she gets it from. You know, it's very I, who weird. knows. Yeah, very very weird. Uh, but uh, the daughter look-
1: and, and the the, the doll uh which is another cursed object that popped up pretty often in in my search of cursed objects uh, Robert the Doll apparently it curses people that go to a museum and ignore him and ignore his exhibit
0: so you have to do you have to like nod his way like do you have to pay proper tribute to this doll how does that work
1: pretty much and then people send stuff to him apologizing
0: i see okay so postcards um other items of endearment that you'd send to to yeah. Robert the Doll Angela I want to talk about the most current cursed item of all time. And that is a Google ad I got while visiting Atlas Obscura today. So uh, targeted ads are a very confusing thing to me. So this targeted ad is for intermittent fasting for seniors. So I have just tweeted out um, a screenshot of me, uh, of the ad that I got. So you can go ahead and go to twitter.com slash double underscore density to see this picture. Angela, I don't understand why I got this. I have not looked up intermittent fasting for seniors. I have not looked up seniors. I have not looked up intermittent fasting. I do not understand why this is here um directed
1: at me i wish i understood if it makes you feel any better i got the exact same ad today
0: so this is like the ring you had seven days to pass the ad on to me
1: yeah i got the exact same ad when i looked at that article that you sent that i sent to you this morning right to the show notes so, <laughs> so you've infected i think it's then. just they just think seniors read atlas obscura and they want them to intermittent uh, fast.
0: Of course. I should have seen that coming this way. I thought it was kind of funny and weird that this is, of course, the ad that I'd be getting while looking at, you know, uh, cursed objects.
1: I will say, as somebody that practices intermittent fasting, it does work.
0: Uh, Angela's uh, new podcast, Getting Fit with Angie, is starting, what, uh, March 2023? Yeah, April first guest, Joe Rogan. Oh, perfect. You guys will synergize, link, and build as we see. Uh, in the LinkedIn world. Angela, I feel like it is a great time to end this cursed episode. How does that sound to you? Sounds good to me. As I just mentioned, you can find us over still alive, still moving, still shaking over on Twitter, double underscore density. You can also find us on Instagram, double density podcast where i posted a that uh, short video of uh, me uh, seeing a beautiful aerial phenomena that is uh, earth-based science-based sadly not a classic ufo and then uh you go over uh find us on double where you can find out all about us uh, all the different ways you can s- subscribe and Angela, tell us what else you can do on double
1: you can fill out that form forms are fun <laughs> just ask uh, tyler and sam
0: Tyler and Sam and Nick last week too, right? So it's a trifecta of forms. Um, yeah, I'm curious to see if anyone else will, will heed the call and uh, keep this form filling going.
1: We appreciate it.
0: This has been it for episode 213 of the Double Density Podcast. You can tune in next week as Angela and I take the moniker 213 quite literally and fly out to San Francisco, California, in order to research more haunted objects on the West Coast uh, without having to ask for approval or guidance from anyone but ourselves.